Hi, welcome to the podcast of our Wednesday night study here at First Baptist Church to Queen. As we go through the book of Revelation, my name is Dr. Josh Herwick, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist to Queen. And over the next few months, we will be looking verse by verse through the book of Revelation. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us here at First Baptist Church through our website, dequeen.church. On our website, you can find all the information you need to get in contact with us. We can't wait to hear from you. And feel free to drop a like or share this podcast if you find it helpful. Well, last week we uh, finished up looking at the, the first of the judgments to come. We saw the scroll that was in the hand of God taken by Jesus, that Jesus began to open some of the seals that were on the scroll. There were seven seals. And last week we finished seal number six. The first four of those seals introduced uh, riders on horses who brought with them judgments on the earth. Uh, and now, right before, here we're going to start today in Revelation chapter 7, right before the seventh seal is open, something happens. So Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 1, John writes, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Now, that phrase, the four corners of the earth, is a very common phrase, not necessarily meaning that the earth is flat and it's only got four corners. It's like the four corners of a compass, actually. Uh, it's an ancient phrase that is still in use today, similar to how we still use the phrase, the sun sets. Uh, even though we know the sun doesn't set and the sun doesn't rise, the earth moves around the sun and rotates causing the illusion of a setting and rising sun. And so in a similar vein, this phrase, the four corners of the earth, uh, is used to describe every uh, element of the world, the entire world. And so uh, in the far uttermost reaches of the earth, we have an angel, or rather four angels, who hold back the four winds of the earth. Now these winds, these four winds, all of the wind, winds, uh, are a symbol of destruction, straight from prophecies in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah chapter 49, Jeremiah chapter 51. In each of those instances, winds are used as a symbol of destruction, as they are here. So these four angels are holding back the destruction from coming onto the earth. So here, for a moment, we have a pause from the destruction that is about to occur. Because look here in verse number 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. An angel carries a seal. Now, this is not like the seals on the scroll that the lamb has been opening. This seal is, is like a stamp itself. Uh, this kind of seal was a symbol of, of ownership in that day and time, especially when not everyone could read. And the fact that the mark is on the forehead gives an indication of a very easy and um, or easy to recognize and easy to see mark. So the angels at the four corners of the world are holding back the four winds of destruction. They are told not to allow the destruction until those who are gods are marked as his with this seal. Now, what the seal looks like, we're not exactly told. I mean, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, that the Holy Spirit is the seal of God on believers. 
so this seal here in Revelation chapter 7 could be the Holy Spirit, or it could be some spiritually discernible mark, just simply. Uh, the seal itself is something that distinguishes believers as recognizable to those bringing the judgments. Revelation chapter 14 refers to the seal as the name of God. So we have these four angels that are, are told to, to not bring their judgments. But notice the way he describes it. The four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. If you remember, the, uh, we have seen four angels who have been given power to harm the earth and the sea. At the introduction of the four seal judgments, when the first four seals were broken on the scroll and the scroll was opened, those four riders on their horses were given power and authority individually to bring judgment. And so this would appear to be that, that these four angels are the four riders going forth at the opening of the first four seals. So the judgment does not begin on the earth until people coming to know Jesus are claimed by God. And this informs us that during this period of time, people are still being saved. So this angel comes forth to seal the believers, to seal those uh, who are gods. It says uh, there in verse 3, the servants of our God, to seal these servants. So the believers, to seal the believers. And we get an image here in, in the remainder of this chapter of who these sealed, uh, of who the sealed are. Verse 4, and I heard the number of the sealed. Remember this, he says, these are the people who are sealed. These are the Christians. These are the believers. Until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, the people who will receive the seal of God. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, the way he uses the word sealed here in verse 4, verse 5, and verse 8, uh, it is used uh, to mean a permanent sealing, one that cannot be undone. But the big question that rises from this is, are these five verses, verse 4 through 8, are they literal or are they figurative? Is a portion of them literal, as in the numbers, but the naming of these tribes literal? Uh, you know, he said, John wrote in verse 3, um, what the angel said, uh, that uh, these the believers need to be sealed, and now he says the believers who will be sealed are from the sons of Israel. What does he mean by that? Now, you know, there, there's a lot of discussion about this particular passage from the book of Revelation, um, and we see that in every numbering and listing uh, of the tribes themselves throughout the Jewish scriptures, some of the counting of each individual tribe, some are always bigger and some are always smaller, but here in this particular instance, every single one is exactly the same. So if the numbers in Revelation 7 here are literal, it would seem 
um, that the tribes themselves would have had maybe more, some would have had more, some would have had less. Why are the numbers equal among every tribe? Um, but it's also interesting and a little out of the ordinary for any passage of Scripture to list a specific number who will yet come to Christ. That doesn't seem to match up with the rest of Revelation, let alone the rest of Scripture, which always ventures away from specific numeric inclusion of the saved. Uh, There are passages in Acts that will recount people who have been saved, but not say, go out and save 2,000 people. And once you hit 2,000, don't save anybody else. The idea is that they would go out and and as many people as possible would be saved, and then a number is given of all the ones who have been saved. But in addition, the list of the tribes itself is odd. We see Judah, who is listed first. Um, Judah is not usually listed first throughout um, the other uh, many listings of the uh, uh, tribes of Israel throughout the Jewish scriptures. Um, There's actually about 20 different tribe lists in the Jewish scriptures, but there is also uh, 18 different orders among those 20 different lists. Uh, but almost without exception, Reuben usually comes first because he is the oldest son. But here in this list, we have Judah coming first. Now, that might indicate uh, Judah, the tribe's importance as the royal tribe, um, as the producer of the Messiah. Uh, but also notice we see that the tribe of Dan is not included, uh, which could be indicative of uh, the tribe's idolatrous past, that they were one of the first tribes to fall into idolatry. Now, that is odd itself, because all of the tribes fell into idolatry. And so it, Dan's exclusion from the list here does not seem uh, to line up with the rest of Scripture, in that all of the tribes broke their covenant with Almighty God because they all fell away from God as a whole. But we also see here Levi as a tribe is included, when that tribe's usually not included. As the priestly tribe, they did not have a, an inheritance of land. Um, they were given individual parcels here and there, but not a whole big grouping like everybody else. So Levi is usually not included in the tribe list. But we also see uh, that Joseph is listed among these tribes. Uh, but one of his sons is also listed, Manasseh, but his other son, Ephraim, who is usually listed as a tribe, is not listed here. Now, if Joseph is listed, technically both of his sons would have been included in his tribe, but Manasseh is listed separately. That's odd. Now, even though this list is odd and the order is odd and some of the inclusions and some of the exclusions are odd, no one has any idea why the tribes are listed the way they are and which particular tribes are listed here. Uh, Anyone who would try to say, well, it's because of this or because of that, it's just guesswork. Nobody really knows. Um, The only thing that every commentator and scholar I looked at can agree on is that Judah listed first would seem to indicate Judah's um, importance because Jesus came from that lineage. Um, But there are some uh, who believe that this 144,000 list here, uh, you know, 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe, this 144,000 list, that some believe that this is literal biological Jews who will be saved during this period of time. And so when the angel said back up in verse 3 that 
the believers of God need to be followed. The servants of God need to be sealed. That he was only talking about Jews there. Uh, but there is another line of thinking uh, in that 144,000 is 12,000 for 12 tribes. That's 12 twelves. And we know throughout the book of Revelation, 12 is a number of completion, a number of wholeness and fullness. Um, and so we see here that duplicated and replicated on itself, uh, 12 twelves. Uh, so the absolute full and complete number. In addition, in James chapter 1, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, uses the phrase 12 tribes as a figure of speech, seemingly referring to Christians who have been scattered around the world. Uh, and Paul also calls Christians in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, he calls them the real Jews. And in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, he calls Christians the Israel of God. As well, the author of Hebrews uh, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, uh, says that the old covenant is obsolete, meaning no longer valid, because not only did uh, Israel break the covenant in their um, refusal to follow God, but Jesus, in his coming and in introducing uh, an introduction of the new covenant, he established one that can never be broken. For any and all who would believe. Uh, and so we see these, and then we have to ask ourselves a question as well why would physical Jews be referred to here if Scripture repeatedly speaks of the covenant of salvation through faith rather than ancestry? Scripture repeatedly says God shows no favoritism. And so I personally believe that the 1212 mean an absolute wholeness or completeness of people who will come to know Christ during this period. And so this passage would then seem to be saying that the whole of Christianity alive will be sealed. Now, I could be absolutely wrong in this, and I know people who are very much smarter than I am who believe and teach that these 1212s, this 144,000, is specifically talking about biological Israel here. Um, but we also have to be extremely careful when we interpret Scripture to draw the meaning from Scripture and not to bring a, a preconceived meaning with us when we read. In interpreting Scripture, we have to accept either a literal or a figurative form of interpretation. I tend to believe that Scripture is to be taken literally unless it is obviously figurative. And the visions we see included in Revelation use figurative language frequently, as do all prophetic visions of the future. And we can easily slip into dangerous territory when we begin to jump back and forth between a literal interpretation and a figurative interpretation whenever the interpretation itself does not fit within our previous thinking of a particular passage. At that point, the, hour, the way we interpret a particular passage of Scripture depends completely upon our own uh, subjective thinking in the moment. We say, oh, that's figurative because I can't believe that it's literal, or that's literal because I can't believe that it's figurative. And so we take it upon ourselves to decide what is figurative and what is literal and not allow Scripture to speak for itself. And so we have to be extremely careful here. Um, throughout the book of Revelation, saying, well, I think this is figurative, 
And I think this is literally, you know, unless it's obvious, it's one or the other. And we have to interpret the whole thing um, the same way. Otherwise, we are, are bending the interpretation to our will instead of bending our will to Scripture. And so that's why I tend to lean towards this 12-12s here, uh, as well as the context of verses 1 through 3 of Revelation chapter 7, as in addition to the remainder of this uh, particular chapter is going to talk about something else that, in my mind, solidifies this being, meaning the whole of Christians who will come to believe during this period of time. Uh, but that's not to say that I'm not wrong. I could be totally, absolutely, uh, and completely wrong here. Um, just during this particular season of my understanding of this passage of Scripture, that's what I think. Um, and if you think something different, then that's no problem. <laughs> if you think something absolutely different, then I welcome that. Um, our salvation does not depend on this passage of Scripture. Um, we we uh, can freely disagree on how it's interpreted. Um, and I'm just acknowledging right here again, I could be definitely wrong in how I'm presenting it, uh, but that's just how I see it um, right now. Now look at verse 9. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now we see here, John heard about the sealing of the 144,000, and he sees this great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, from, or from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages that are now standing in front of the throne. The great multitude has no number. It is completely comprised of individuals from every existing people group, including Jews. So if the previous description from Revelation 7, verses 4 through 8, had only been referring to physical Jews, then this multitude would be in contrast to that one, uh, including everyone else, particularly only Gentiles. However, John uses language here that is all-inclusive in his hyperbolic description meaning that this group is representative of every people group to no exclusion, even a Jewish one. Thus, it is my belief that the previous description of people, the twelve twelves, and this one, the great multitude, are one and the same. These people here are wearing white robes, holding palm branches, symbolizing victory and triumph. Notice also that the Lamb is, again, given a place equal to God because salvation comes from them both. Verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So all the angels present in this moment, they're encircling the entire scene and are praising God. 360 degree sound, surround sound to the nth degree. Notice also that they praise God for seven specific characteristics. Each of the seven areas of praise that the angels declare to God are presented in the Greek with an article before it, like the word the. For example, there the first uh, uh, characteristic of praise, blessing 
uh, in the Greek says the blessing, and that implies that they're saying the blessing above all others, the glory above all others, the wisdom above all others, the thanksgiving, honor, power, might above all others be to our God forever and ever. So they're giving God the, the, the uttermost, the highest possible praise that they can in communicating this. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So I try to picture this in terms of what's happening here in the moment. I mean, John is trying to take in everything. Um, in my own mind, he has to take, uh, in trying to take it in, there are you know, massive gaps of time as, as he is overwhelmed uh, sensorily with, with uh, everything that's bombarding his eyes and his ears and everything that he's experiencing. And as the praise is resounding all over here, the throne room, one of the elders addresses John, turns to John and says, okay, who are these people? And John says, I have no idea. Uh, You tell me who they are. And the elder says back to him, these are ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. Uh, These are Christians who are coming out of the tribulation. Now, some believe that the great tribulation, that refers specifically to the seven year period of trouble, uh, or because of the vast number of people, there are some who believe it could mean the great tribulation of life in general, that not every believer will be alive during the great tribulation of the revelation. So it would seem that since every angel is present, that uh, maybe every believer is also present. For the number of believers from the great tribulation of of revelation might not be great enough to be called a multitude. That's what some people believe. But since John's vision of the revelation deals singularly with what is yet to come, I personally believe that this right here refers to those who will believe during the specific period of tribulation of great judgment and difficulty at the end. The Roman counting system only went up to 10,000. It didn't go above that. So it is easy to believe that this great multitude numbered more than 10,000, thus making it innumerable. And if during the period of tribulation, it's easy to think as well, more than 10,000 people would get saved. If, as the world is today, there's nearly 8 billion people on the planet during several years of great difficulty, it's easy to think that 10,000 people are saved. That seems like a, uh, a very minute number compared to how many will be saved. And so we have people being saved during this period of time. And the elder says these people are coming out of the Great Tribulation. Now that's interesting, because remember what, what has just been happening in the book of Revelation is the judgments just started. The Tribulation just started. And before even the judgments came, uh, the angel said that the, the believers of God had to be sealed. They had to be sealed first. And so Revelation 7, 1 through 8, happens before the judgments begin. And what we have here, what follows, is, is seemingly a time jump forward. After all of the judgments have concluded. Because 
These, this great multitude of believers, are coming out of the tribulation. They, tribula- the tribulation has concluded here. Verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now it seems like the whole of heaven itself is God's temple. Because it's all within his presence. The temple, the temple itself symbolizes God's presence. And so this experience of God's presence will be unlike anything for which we have a context right now. And some of the language used there is very similar to language from the end of the book of Revelation in that they, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, no more sadness, there will be no more hunger. Um, it will be a completely different experience than the, the, the trials and the struggle of the tribulation or even of the life we have now. One of the commentators I read, a guy named Leon Morris, described it this way, that the believers will know no unsatisfied desire uh, in that experience of eternity. And so we see all of this going on. The sealing of the saved. We see uh, the praise that's being experienced here, the people who have come out of the tribulation, this time seeming time jump. And now we get back to, we, we take a time jump back to the seventh seal being opened in Revelation chapter 8. Look at verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So here's the time jump back to the judgments of the seals. The silence that he mentions is remarkable, considering that there has not been any amount of silence since John was brought into God's presence. And we have this silence, and and throughout Scripture, silence is frequently, occasionally, associated with severe judgment. In Isaiah 41, Amos chapter 8, Exodus chapter 11, Habakkuk chapter 2, Zechariah chapter 2. Each time, there's silence along with judgment that's coming. Also, as a point of note, half an hour that's mentioned of this silence. This is the shortest time frame mentioned in Revelation. It's a fairly short period of time. And then seven more angels in God's presence are given seven trumpets to usher in more destructive judgments. These seven trumpets are revealed at the opening of the seventh seal. So they're still a part of the seventh seal, the seven trumpets that these seven angels are holding. But they also introduce a whole new set of judgments which is interesting. I had somebody note as we were going through this in the study on Wednesday night that the uh, earth was created in seven days, the seventh day being a day of Sabbath, a day of rest. So the earth was, God used seven to create, and now here we have a series of seven used to bring judgment, to bring the end. And even in that, the seventh one is used uh, not as a form of judgment, but to introduce something else, just like in creation, the seventh day was used to introduce the Sabbath. Look at verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. 
and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So before any of the seven angels blow their seven trumpets, another angel comes forward, and he has an offering of prayer. The prayers of the saints usher in the wrath of God. The power of prayer knows only the bounds of the power of God, which itself cannot be contained or bound to any level or degree. Prayer can and should be offered at any point. And here we see that judgment itself is paused so that believing prayers can be offered to God. Then the prayers, or then the offered prayers, along with the fire of God's presence, are thrown upon the earth as an unstoppable force. Nothing can stand against the power of prayer. Verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So with the sound of the first trumpet come hail, fire, and blood. Fire is an indication of divine destruction. Now. That word in verse 7 used for mixed, hail and fire mixed with blood, that, that, that Greek word used for mixed there, it's frequently used metaphorically to describe the means that brought about the blood. So blood here would seem to be descriptive, not as bloody rain, but that the fire and hail will spill the blood of the people. Joel chapter 2 verse 19 describes a very similar catastrophe to this one at the day of the Lord. Uh, and this impact of terrible weather directly impacts a third of the world. And this terrible plague, this terrible judgment, similar to some of the others actually, uh, is relatable even back to the plagues that befell Egypt in the book of Exodus. Look at verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. So the first trumpet judgment impacted a third of the land. And now the second judgment, trumpet judgment, impacts a third of the sea. The burning mountain is imagery of divine destruction in the sea. There are some who think this is, could be pollution coming up and uh, doing this over a period of time. But it's not merely pollution, because something of divine origin here uh, is affecting both sea creatures in the sea and ships on the sea. The idea appears to be something that's abrupt and something that's violent, uh, that, that has this devastating blow, killing a third of all living creatures in the sea and destroying all, a third of all the ships on the sea. Uh, and so the blood there, the sea becoming blood, could either be a, you know, a divine, uh, supernatural experience similar to Moses turning the water into blood in the book of Exodus, uh, or the blood that itself could be a result of the living creatures and all the men on all these ships dying and being in the sea. 
Verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So this time we see a star burning, and this star poisons a third of the world's water. Wormwood is a real deal. It's, it's a very bitter substance. Uh, it's actually mentioned in Scripture seven different times, and each time uh, represents sorrow and judgment. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 4, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 15, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 15, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 15 and 19, and Amos chapter 5, verse 7. The bitterness is symbolic of poison. And we see the previous trumpet judgment hit one-third of the ocean, and now this one poisons one-third of the freshwater. It's also not specified here how many people died. It just says many, a lot, many people. So it's a whole lot of people die as a result of the poison water. Look at verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, and a third of their light might be darkened, or so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, the question we have to ask with this is, does this mean that a third of the light is gone, in that the sun and the stars shine a third less brightly, or does this mean that no light shines for a third of the day and a third of the night? From the text, I mean, however you read it, it could mean either one, either a there, you know, it's a third dimmer, or that's just complete blackness for a third of the time. The, I mean, the fourth judgment trumpet removes a third of all celestial light, one way or another. I had somebody point out last night as we went through this scripture uh, that this would be devastating to plant life. I mean, even though a third of the plants are, you know, have already been killed in a previous judgment. Uh, because there's not as much light for photosynthesis for their own personal for their own growth, the individual plants. So the food supply uh, would take a huge hit with this one as well. Now look at verse 13, our last verse for this part. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So the three woes are for what is yet to come, not for what has just happened. The, the next judgments, he says, are going to be even worse than those that have already come. So what this eagle is doing, is he, he is calling out, and this is a call of preparation, of warning, possibly to give the hearers an opportunity to repent and believe. That's God's purpose and desire through, through all of this. Is that more people would believe. Is that heaven would be filled with people. Now thank you for joining us today as we explore both Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 8. Next week we will take on the next portion of Scripture in the book of Revelation. And if you have any questions, please feel free to email us. Uh, but if you also found this helpful, 
or, or you liked it in any capacity, like this podcast, share this podcast. That will help us out tremendously uh, as we um, just seek to bring the message of Jesus to as many people as possible. I'll catch you in the next one.